If you just wandered in or, you know, this is your first night or if you've forgotten where you are for some reason, uh, here's a bit of an update on what we're doing at the moment at Van City Church. Last week was Easter Sunday, just to be clear. That's why it was very specific. Uh, so we celebrated together. It was a blast. This week, we're back in a brief series on the art of forgiveness. See, at Van City, we've kind of organized our entire church around this idea of practicing the way of Jesus. For us, that means learning the teachings and the lifestyle and the habits and the disciplines and the practices of Jesus of Nazareth one by one, and then actually giving them a shot together. In this paradigm, our church is sort of like a, a, the dojo. Jesus is the sensei, and we are his apprentices. And so with that in mind, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine a hilltop dojo. This is where my mind goes. I don't know about you guys. A hilltop dojo in the pre-morning fog of Kyoto, Japan, and a wise old sensei stands before a young apprentice, and he kind of just talks at him for a half hour. They sing a song, and then the apprentice goes home to his normal life, expecting that this routine will somehow make him into a black belt. No, and Traditionally, in the idea of the whole master-apprentice tradition, there is training. There's actually practice that goes into learning an art form. And that is why every few months we take on a new spiritual discipline or a new principle of emotional health. We talk about it here together on Sunday evenings, but then we spread out into smaller groups that we call Van City Communities to kind of do the active training together. So tonight we will conclude a four-week training on the art of forgiveness. If you've missed a Sunday or if Easter threw you off to such a degree that you just don't know where you are, you know, go back and listen to the podcast. That's what it's there for. Because we've actually covered, covered quite a bit in the last uh, month in terms of what it means to forgive those who have wronged us. We talked about what forgiveness is and what it isn't. We talked about how forgiveness can act as an agent of healing, how it can mend relationships, how it can foster maturity in our lives, how it can uh, grow us into a more complete disciple of Jesus. But we also talked about how unforgiveness can stagnate us in patterns of immaturity. It can rend communities. It can stunt growth. But all of that has sort of by design slowly constructed an elephant now present in the room with us, and that is, what about when we hurt other people? So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, if you have a Bible or, you know, you can, this is the one time you can take out your phone. Don't use it to look at anything else. There's cameras all over here. There's not really. Don't worry. Um, learning to forgive is important. Learning to forgive other people when they hurt you, it's actually crucial. But all of us are broken, flawed human beings. Consequently, we are in need of forgiveness as often or even more so, I would guess, than we are called to distribute forgiveness to others. Of course, as complicated and messy the conversation around forgiving other people can be, most of us would prefer that to the cumbersome admission that we need, to, we need other people to forgive us. And yet, seeking forgiveness for the disciple of Jesus is every bit as essential as giving forgiveness. With that in mind, let's read from Luke's biography of Jesus, chapter 17, beginning with the very first verse. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. In other words, all of us are bound to hurt one another. That is an inevitability, even according to Jesus. He goes on, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone or big rock tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, I realize that sounds intense, and it is. 
But don't get hung up on this line. Actually, the whole bit about it's better to be thrown in the sea with a millstone tied around your neck was an idiom in the first century. It's kind of like a well-worn figure of speech. It may have been a bit like uh, similarly extreme-sounding idioms that we use today. So here's the easiest example I could think of. Uh, My wife has been, this is a true story, my wife has been a fan of um, Taylor Swift for more than a decade now, uh, almost as long as we've been married, honestly. And as a faithful fan, she's followed the entire career trajectory over the years, and I'm like a, you know, sadly a helpless bystander in that journey. I'm just along for the ride now. We already did the vows and everything. But with the release of this uh, last record that came out, I had to make like a formal plea to my wife. I said, please, do not play this record in my presence. I am begging you. I would rather... (laughs) have toothpicks driven beneath my fingernails to have, then have another moment of this in my ears ever again. And that sounds intense, uh, but it's just kind of an honest, albeit hyperbolic, way of saying that one thing is radically preferable to another thing. Basically, it's like saying, I'd rather do anything than have to hear this again. So in context, Jesus is saying, like, it'd be better for you to get thrown into the ocean than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And in context, little ones is a term that refers to other disciples of Jesus. And he goes on in verse 3. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, You must forgive them. Now, uh, a brief word on the nature of the Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus' life. We know that Jesus said and did more than the Gospels record. Uh, John, one of Jesus' biographers, even makes the point of saying that Jesus' life and his work were so prolific that to document it all would have been an, an impossibility. So in a kind of pre-printing press era, the biographies of Jesus make edits for time. They compile stories or they summarize, in other words. And what we've just read is kind of a summary of what Jesus has to say about forgiving. You will hurt other people, but this is not permissible. It's not a good thing and it's not okay. If and when other people hurt you, you should confront them. If they repent, which is just a word that means turn away from their mistake, then forgive them. No grudges, release them from their debt and move on, repeat as necessary. Regardless of how repetitive the cycle becomes, always forgive again and again and again. Fight for forgiveness and then forgive well. The end. And what becomes clear upon inspection is that Jesus is not interested in kind of simply observing the formality of the process for the process sake. He is is interested in the preservation of relationships. Jesus is after reconciliation. Often when we talk about forgiveness, especially kind of in the self-help world, the conversation begins and ends with you. Forgiveness is about your healing. It's about changing your experience of the past and of changing your negative emotions. And those are all good things, to be clear. We think Jesus is after those things as well. But for disciples of Jesus, this is not the end of the process because the disciple of Jesus is always mindful of the other, even those who sin against them. You and your offender matter to Jesus. That is why we mentioned earlier on that forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Our our working definition of what forgiveness is throughout the series is from our friend Dr. Gary Brashears, and he says it this way, forgiveness is the personal act of releasing someone who has sinned against me from my right to pay them back for their offense. Instead of reciprocating the pain I have been given, I absorb or transform the pain into myself with God's help. Now, reconciliation, 
on the other hand, is about the process of mending a broken relationship. To forgive, only one party is necessary. You can forgive someone regardless of whether or not they're sorry, whether or not they admit to any fault at all, you can forgive them. You simply refuse to collect on the moral debt and you seek God's empowerment to transform that hurt into something good for the world. Reconciliation, on the other hand, requires two participatory parties. And this is important because there are times in which, though forgiveness is always necessary, always commanded by Jesus, reconciliation just can't be made. And that's that. Some people are, frankly, unhealthy. They don't want reconciliation. They, they simply will not repent or turn from their wrongdoing. There are also times in which restoring a relationship is simply not the healthy or wise thing to do, depending on the wrong that's been done. And in such cases, it's often most wise for your own health and for the health of those around you to sever connections with the person, allowing that relationship to expire. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are commanded by your teacher and your master to forgive others again and again and again. But you are not commanded to reconcile and remain in every relationship regardless of how toxic it becomes. But, and please listen to me here, our hope, our heart, our desire, and our effort should always be for the pursuit of reconciliation. And the reason is that Jesus wants to heal wounds, for sure. He wants to do even more than that. He wants to create communities of forgiveness. Jesus wants a church, a people. He wants us to grow in maturity and in emotional health so that we remain a church, we remain a people and a community. And Jesus wants the church to not just act as an agent of forgiveness in and of itself, but he wants us to act as an agent of reconciliation in the whole world. He wants his disciples to represent what it means to be reconciled to God and to other people so that other people will look to us to know the ways of community, to know what it means to live and breathe and do life as a family, as a community. And for that, you have to learn the ways of forgiveness. But you also have to chase after reconciliation as well. At the heart of the New Testament paradigm of this word we use all the time, community, is this idea of basically sharing life. Meaning disciples of Jesus learn what it means to share in the meaningful weight of one another's lives. More than just kind of sitting together and singing songs on Sunday, which is awesome, but sharing meals around a table, being there in times of celebration, being there in times of tragedy, learning and praying and stumbling along the way of life together. And of course, Jesus knew that that would be no easy undertaking. For Jesus, this isn't some kind of naive, idealistic pie-in-the-sky pipe dream type of thing. Just look at the language he uses himself. He says, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. You will hurt one another. All of us are born into a broken world, tangled and marred by failure and corruption. All of us are tragically bent out of shape, away from what is good and toward what is destructive. Thus, our relational connectedness is often caught in the crossfire of our brokenness. It's just the air that we breathe. And Jesus gets that. He prescribes as an, antidote, as an antidote the art of forgiveness and reconciliation. This means that for those of us who follow Jesus, you, cannot simply, you simply cannot afford to go the way of the status quo, which is immature, unhealthy refusal to confront, refusal to work hard and repent and forgive and reconcile. When relationships get fractured, 
in ways big or small. We, as the community of God, as disciples of Jesus, we simply don't check out and move on and talk to other people about what went wrong. We do the difficult but much better work of reconciliation. And what you need to understand is that forgiveness and reconciliation ultimately is about so much more than just you and another person. Ultimately, this shapes the way that you relate to other people in general on a culture-wide level and the way that you relate to God himself. The authors of Forgiving as We've Been Forgiven note this. In the Lord's Prayer, um, Jesus' sort of template for how to pray well, forgiveness is placed alongside the basic human necessity of daily nourishment. Just as daily food sustains our bodies, daily forgiveness maintains the unity of the community. For Jesus, it was imperative that his disciples understand that a relationship with God is closely tied to relationships with other people. We as believers must form communities of forgiveness if we are to become agents of communal forgiveness and reconciliation in a world of tribal, racial, religious, and gender violence. We must, in the language of Dr. Martin Luther King, learn forgiveness as a constant attitude. Now, of course, for the vast majority of us, this does not come naturally. Uh, if you're a parent, then you see this on a regular basis. Uh, you know, if the, if the amount of children downstairs at the moment is any indication, then everyone sitting in this room has 10 kids. Uh, stop having kids, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I have two kids. I had them before, you know, so it's too late for me. But you guys stop having kids. Um, Beck is four. Isla is one and a half. And uh, spoiler alert, if you are one of the two people in the room without 10 kids, children are often buttheads. Did you know that? Um, our, in our community, uh, our Van City community, the one that I'm in, has eight children in it. Eight children. It's just a chaotic whirlwind of buttheads. It's like a butthead tornado in there, man. This is awful. Kids are constantly like offending one another and hurting one another and upsetting one another. And with my kids, I've seen for years now that forgiveness and reconciliation are simply unnatural human behaviors. Sure, every now and then, uh, you catch the rare moment of benevolence and everyone's like, oh my God, they're amazing, you know, for a second. But mostly, they do the same types of things. And here they are. One, they refuse to acknowledge the offense, right? The one kid is who you hear like screaming in the other room, rushing in there. One kid is wailing on the floor, tears, all red faced. And the other one's just on the other side of the room playing quietly with a toy. And uh, you're like, well, something happened. And so you go to the kid and you ask what happened and they shift blame to someone else. So they say, well, they took my toy or they hit me first or they shoved me or what they, they, they. The instigator, the perpetrator, prefers to imagine themselves as the victim. And listen, I get that sometimes it's complicated. Even with kids, it's sometimes very complicated. But when you hurt someone else, responsibility for that hurt has to be taken by you, the person who did the hurting. So I'll tell back my son, yes, your sister snatched away the parasaurolophus. This is a dinosaur. That's lame. I get it. But then you hit her. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And then we as parents teach, or in this case, force you know, them to do reconciliation together. But they want to do the bare minimum. So they want to kind of mum, you've seen kids do it, they mumble, I'm so sorry, with their eyes down and kick at the floor, so sorry, sissy. And then they run back to whatever it was that they're doing. So Abby and I have to stand there and say, no, look them in the eye and tell them what you're sorry for and why. So we have to explain this part to them, but it's okay, it's a teaching moment. And then it's okay, now, now, Ask them to forgive you. And then we begin the work with the other kid. Okay, listen, they said they were sorry. They want you to forgive them. Will you forgive your brother? You know, on and on it goes. Now, 
take a look at this slide for a moment and ask yourself, how many relational conflicts with adults have you seen unfold the exact same way? Or, you know, you don't have to answer this out loud, but how often have you done this? So many of us, I think, have yet to learn the ways of forgiveness and reconciliation decades out of childhood. So what we're going to do tonight and for our final session in this practice of forgiveness is a step-by-step guide to reconciliation. This is adapted from one of my professors in seminary and a friend of mine, Dr. Gary Brashears, who gave us our definition of forgiveness. And before the steps of reconciliation can even begin, there's kind of a prequel notion that happens, and that's conviction, meaning the reality suddenly dawns on you that you have indeed sinned against another person. You've wronged them, you've hurt them, you've made a mistake. And without this realization, there can be no reconciliation, just to be clear. You cannot even begin the process without this. And I've experienced this firsthand. You know, there's a wrong done, a struggle ensues, and then one party emerges wanting to reconcile without having to admit that they've done anything wrong. And uh, for one reason or another, they just won't do it. It's a bit like a hurricane comes along and it rips up a house, you know, rips it up from the very foundation, and then someone comes along and says, well, just build it again. And someone else is going, build it on what? We have to, like, start from the bottom up. So conviction comes first. And it can come from your own experiential common sense. Uh, I've been having breakfast with the same small group of friends every Monday morning for five years now, actually, really, five years, same group, every Monday morning at 8 a.m., 8 a.m., and you'd think by now that I'd know not to say rude things to these people, some of my closest friends, but just a couple of weeks ago, one of our crew was telling us about, like, a particular parenting decision that he and his wife had made, and I responded almost immediately by saying, that's dumb. I don't know why I said it, but that's what I said. I said, that's dumb, and for a brief moment, and I uh, I wasn't even being cute or anything. I was being really rude. For a brief moment, I even defended the logic. I was like, no, it is dumb, you know. And then it hit me, like, what the heck am I doing? How rude and unkind. Why would I talk to my friend this way? And of course, I, you know, I apologized. I repented. I asked for my friend's forgiveness, which he happily extended to me. We talked about it. It was a thing. Point is, for something like that, uh, God didn't need to, like, hit me with an epiphany during a six-hour session of silence and solitude, you know. I, I, and yet I was convicted. But of course, there are times that you will uncover conviction in sessions of thoughtful prayer and meditation, realize that you've um, wronged a friend without having realized in the moment. It works both ways. But in either event, you have to realize that you've made a mistake. That's the foundation on which the four steps of reconciliation are built. Now, step one in the process following conviction is confession. In essence, you simply verbalize your awareness of the thing that you've done. The first step is obviously a crucial one, Uh, so let's talk for a moment about how to do it really well. When you confess to wronging another person, it's not about you feeling better, okay? It's about you feeling the pain of your mistake with that person. So in that regard, don't rush to forgiveness, meaning don't kind of say, hey, listen, I'm really sorry, will you forgive me, like in a single sentence like that, because what that does is immediately offloads the burden of what's happening onto the other person. Now it's up to them, balls in your court, before they've even had a chance to process what's happened. Believe it or not, it's actually healthy, and I would argue necessary for you maturing as adult, and me maturing as an adult, as an adult, to take time to sit in the awareness of your mistakes for a minute, not like, 
you know, wallowing in shame or pity or anything like that, but to stop and acknowledge that something has happened. It generates remorse and compassion and empathy. So before you apologize, you confess. To my friend, I said, dude, that that was really unkind and thoughtless of me to call you and your parenting decision dumb. It was rude. It was unfeeling. It's not the way friends treat one another. And honestly, when I stop to think about it, that's not what I mean. I don't actually think that. It was a careless thing to say. So that's what I said in so many words. And then it was his turn to talk. And when he understood that I knew what I was apologizing for, then I told him I was sorry. Now, when you apologize, here are some absolutely essential things to remember. The first is be specific. That goes with the confession, not just, hey, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry for. You know, this is something that we do over and over again with our kids. What, why are you sorry? Do you understand why it is that they're upset? Tell them why you're sorry. This is all about what you've done wrong, not them. So keep it in that area to begin with. Do not add an addendum. Do not say, I'm sorry I called you dumb, but I just really feel, you know, dot, dot, dot. Or do not say, I'm sorry I said that, but I've just been so stressed. No, no addendums, no justification, no appendix, just the apology. And finally, and please listen to me on this one, please, please never shift responsibility to the other person that you've hurt. You guys, you know, know the apology. I'm sorry if you felt hurt by the thing that I did, or I'm sorry if you feel like I was rude or whatever. That's not an apology, not even slightly in any sense. And and that uh, distinction in language is actually massive. Again, you are accepting responsibility for you and your mistake, right? So confess Be specific, no qualifications, no addendums, no buts, no word trickery, just the admission of your wrongdoing, and then you welcome the other uh, party's opportunity to forgive you if they will. And then comes repentance. Now, I realize that word feels a bit kind of religiously loaded, but again, it simply means to turn around. So you do more than acknowledge, confess to, and apologizing for wronging another person. You actually change your behavior. Of course, you can't commit to perfection, and and few people expect that, at least if they're even slightly realistic. But you can commit to the ongoing effort of repentance, that you will try to be a better friend, a better person, whatever. Often, we tend to want to apologize without having to actually do anything about it. Or we'd actually just rather behave better uh, without having to admit that we were wrong and ask for forgiveness in the first place. But one doesn't work without the other to actually restore relationships and be reconciled. And even after repentance, there's still work to do. So step three in the process is restitution. Now, uh, this can be tricky, but it's about as much as it depends on you and as much as it is humanly possible, setting to right what you have wronged. And it only applies in specific sorts of situations. So if you've stolen from someone, for example, this is an easy example, you give it back. You pay them back. If you've damaged someone's reputation, you go to the people around whom you've spoken poorly of this person and you clear their name. A couple of years ago, uh, I was at my wife Abby's parents' house for dinner and I got into an argument with uh, my mother-in-law, Lynette, who's a theological argument. Now, so far, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it was friendly in the beginning. But as things kind of ramped up, I, uh, I got aggravated. I said something very arrogant, very mean-spirited, and, and very foolish, frankly, to my mother-in-law, Lynette. And as the conversation carried on, I slowly like, started to realize, 
oh my gosh, what the heck is, you know, you know the kind where you're like, what am I saying? Um, so, you know, I stopped and I took her aside and I apologized to her and she forgave me, of course, or at least she claimed to, I'm sure she really did. Um, but then the next morning I was kind of like, I sat down to pray and I was reading the scriptures and suddenly I, I felt like God's spirit was saying like, hey, listen, there were a lot of people in that room and they all heard what you said. You're, you're not done yet. And I was like, ah, dang it. So, uh, I got on the phone, I called Abby's dad, and I apologized to him for what I had said to his wife. And then I called uh, Abby's sister, and then I called her brother-in-law, and on down the list, and I confessed, and I apologized, and I welcomed their forgiveness, and you know, they all readily offered it. But at the time, you know, I felt, frankly, I felt very foolish and ashamed. I was having to like repeat this stupid thing that I had done to all these different people. But I realized that God was teaching me about restitution. Other people had heard the way that I spoke to Lynette, and it was really rude and really demeaning of her. And it stands to reason, she, I'm sure she may have been embarrassed by it. But in any event, it was up to me to undo the thing that I had done, to go around and say, that wasn't right. I know you were sitting right there. It was rude of me. It was unfeeling. And I need to make restitution for that. So <clears throat> uh, once, you know, many years ago, I had an old friend with whom I had worked for several years, and this uh, friend of mine stole a large sum of money um, from myself and from some of our friends over a long period of time. When we happened to uncover what he had done, he apologized, but he, he did it with kind of qualifications and excuses. Oh, I'm sorry, but you know, you got to understand it was because of this, or I'm sorry, but um, here's where I was at the time, you know. And he asked us to forgive him, um, but he did not offer to give anything back. And uh, it was still on us to forgive him, absolutely, and, and we did. But the relationship never got reconciled because there was this weird thing uh, hanging in the air, which was the restitution piece. Restitution is essential if you want to arrive at the final step of the process, which is reconciliation. Dr. Gary Brashears calls this clearing up the relational damage done by sin. In this final stage, both the offended and the offender move out of the place of woundedness and into a place of healing and redemption for the relationship. Of course, it doesn't mean that everything goes back to normal. It doesn't mean that there won't be more work to do along the way. You may well need time. I'm sure there will be ongoing effort depending on the, the nature of the offense. There might be therapy or a trusted friend or a pastor or a mentor involved. There might be inner healing prayer. All of that's okay, great, even encouraged but you're still in a relationship with that person. You've begun the journey of putting the past behind you, not erasing it, not ignoring it. In fact, you're doing the opposite of those. You, you're dealing with it together, and now you're moving forward in the relationship, in the process of reconciliation. So you're convicted, and then there are four steps. Confession, repentance, restitution, and reconciliation. And of course, each of those will look a little different depending on the scenario. Now, before we end tonight, let's point out two of the, the more common mistakes we tend to make in this four-step process. First, we often prefer to skip straight to the end, you know? Um, that is, when you're the offender, you'd often love to move directly from the offense to the reconciliation, uh, or at least skip, skip one or two of the steps along the way. And then you kind of put the onus on the other person, saying like, well, what the heck, man? You just stagnating on this thing, you're dwelling on it, I'm trying to be reconciled, and you're leaving out the healthy components of the process. For the final step, the reconciliation, to have any real substance, you have to get there by way of steps one, two, and three first. 
The other common mistake that we make is uh, refusing to own our role in the process of reconciliation. Often throughout this series, I'm sure that it sounded like we've been highlighting scenarios in which one party is entirely guilty and the other party is entirely innocent. And there are certainly rare circumstances in which that is the case, absolutely. But in most incidents of relational discord, even where there is kind of a main offender, so to speak, there are most often two parties who have played a role in the relational breakdown along the way big or small. So part of reconciliation is doing the work of owning your own mistakes in that breakdown. Uh, You and I are alive in a kind of a unique moment of uh, victim worship. So social commentators note this interesting turn of the tide in which an authentic, uh, as authentic persecution and oppression are being exposed, which, which is a good thing, to be clear, and it does exist, to be clear. Individuals in the simplistic, uh, uninformed shelter of social media have begun to understand the world in two categories, black and white, the oppressors and the oppressed. So consequently, they rush to join the oppressed party because, you know, better to be them than the oppressors. So you have all sorts of bizarre things happening. You know, students begin to think that like work at school is oppressive and, you know, white people get terrified by the success of the Black Panther movie. What does this mean? You know, or protesters organize around the film adaptation of the Peter Rabbit movie because it is oppressive to those with food allergies. So this is a true story. There's a world where this is hilarious to me. I'm sorry. uh, Sony, which is a a major movie studio, issues a formal statement. I read it when I was writing this teaching. And it says, I quote, food allergies are a serious issue, which is true. Our film should have not made light of Peter Rabbit's arch nemesis, Mr. McGregor, being allergic to blackberries. (laughs) I didn't know that about Mr. McGregor. Um, And regardless of how you feel about the Peter Rabbit movie or if, you you know, you're allergic to blackberries, (laughs) sorry, Um, it's a a pretty interesting snapshot of, like, the, the moment that we're in. And here's the point for you and I. When everyone is a victim, no one is. The, the elevation of victimhood edges out actual victims of oppression and racism and sexism and assault and, and so on. And listen, actual victims are not the only ones who suffer. As a result, everyone clamoring for a spot at the victim table pays an awful price because they will languish in patterns of immaturity. One fundamental dimension of human development and maturity is learning to take responsibility for your actions. Uh, for your part in the wrongness of the world. But at the self-appointed victim table, someone else is always to blame, either entirely or, or at least in part, hence the apologies that rush to shift blame within seconds. Well, you know, listen, I'm sorry about that, but you have to understand the way that I was raised, or you have to understand how my week was, or whatever it might be. And that isn't to say that there are never outside factors and additional components. I get that there are. But being an adult means assuming responsibility for the things that you have done. Think about it. The invitation of Jesus to anyone who would become his apprentice is this famous bit of bad PR. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple or apprentice must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The work of the apprentice of Jesus is to constantly locate, expunge, and destroy everything within you that goes against the way of Jesus. And listen, You can't do that if you are unwilling to own your own crap, right? You you understand that. If you won't do that, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Instead, 
you will be untransformed. You will remain exactly like you are, or you will sort of digress. You will devolve. You will repeat the same patterns of childish entitlement and immaturity and blame shifting again and again and again. And it would be easy to dismiss the person who won't accept responsibility as little more than, you know, another incident of millennial entitlement or whatever. And, and it may well be that from time to time, but often one struggles to confront their own mistakes because of their own struggle with shame. What I mean is that saying, you know, saying, oh, I'm sorry if you accidentally bumped someone in the aisle at the grocery store is, is actually pretty easy. It's far more difficult to apologize for something that feels connected to your identity or to who you are, even if it's in a negative sense. Uh, clinical psychologist Harriet Lerner, who has written at length on the topic of relational fallout, says this, the non-apologizer walks on a tightrope of defensiveness over a canyon of shame. But the good news for the disciple of Jesus is that your identity, your value and worth are not rooted in what you have or have not done. They are not rooted in what has or has not been done to you. But your identity, your self-worth and value are rooted in who Jesus says you are and who Jesus says you are becoming. Because Jesus freely forgives his disciples, because God is a good father who adopts us into his family, then we have space to make mistakes in our family, in the church, in our communities, and then to get back up and to try again without being crippled by shame. Because our mistakes are not who we are at a fundamental level. So we get to drag them out into the open and say, yeah, there it is. It's ugly, but that's not who I am. So with that on the line, then it's easier to say, you know what, I'm sorry, that was wrong. I did this. It's easier to apologize, to repent, to reconcile, because we know who we are and who we are not, and we know who we are becoming. And when the church learns this, we will be capable of standing in the midst of a storm of hostile, divided, angry, argumentative culture, acting as peaceful agents of humble reconciliation. To end this practice, when your community meets this week, you'll head to practicingtheway.org and you'll think through any potential area in need of reconciliation, if there is one. You may find that you need to take responsibility for how you've hurt someone. That may mean talking to God. It may mean talking to another person, if that's possible. You may have to call someone or go out to coffee or write a letter even. You know, a few years ago, Abby and I had some friends who we felt had kind of hurt us. It wasn't something monumental or traumatic per se, but the relationship eventually ended as a result, kind of tapered off naturally. And years later, these friends, they had moved away. We hadn't seen or heard from them in quite a spell. And a letter arrived in the mail from these old friends of ours, and they owned their mistakes. They apologized. Uh, and I was honestly tremendously touched by it, though I wasn't embittered at all. I hadn't given any thought to it. And just the same, it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing example of faithfulness to the way of Jesus. And chances are it's not too late to do something like that, if that's appropriate. For others, you may need to make restitution, which means, uh, in some cases, maybe it means writing a check or <laughs> returning something that you've taken or repairing someone's name that you've dragged through the mud. Whatever it is, you are taking on this difficult work as an apprentice of Jesus. This means that when Jesus says, deny yourself, the self is the one who would like to do anything but apologize. And you can do this, empowered by God's Spirit to be who Jesus says you truly are. Of course, 
We realize that four weeks of a practice around forgiveness won't repair every burned bridge in your life. That's not the expectation. This is about learning and acquiring the tools of forgiveness as we grow together so that we can become a people of forgiveness in our lives. May we become a community of reconciliation, a people who have truly learned what it means to adopt forgiveness as a constant attitude.